Tonight, I'd like to talk about the inner landscape of compassion. From what I hear and see and feel in my world around me, in all of you, in my own family, in my community, in the, globally, and what I feel in my own heart, I have begun to sense in more recent years and in stronger ways a growing sense of urgency to do what we can to offer our gifts, no matter how insignificant or small they may seem to be to us, to consider them very carefully and to do what we can, what I can, to offer some help to the world, to be able to touch the world, which is increasing in speed, increasing in complexity, to touch it with simplicity, a little more simplicity, to touch it with a little more slowness, to touch it with a little more kindness, to sort of um, counteract in small ways, ways that I can, what's happening in the world that creates a lot of confusion in all of us individually, and then we make the cycle vicious by adding that to the world. Equally as strong and as important to me is a growing spiritual urgency to go within, deep within, to that place before I start, before we start projecting on the world. In recent years, it has been more and more clear to me how we live in this world of projection of each other, I project what I think I see out there. People project what they think they see on me. And that's the world we live in, that world of projection more than the world of reality. And so this is sad for me. I would like to be more and more living in a very clear view of how things actually are rather than living in my projections of how I think things are or how I would uh, think they should be. I came across this beautiful little quote um, from the Shambhala Sun, probably from last year, by a beautiful Asian lady, Agnes Au. And she was writing about Buddhist women. And she talks about the unlayering of pain in our hearts. And so she said, which really touched my own heart, I see this path is actually an invitation to strip naked at one's own pace, and in so doing, to experience the vividness of an unfiltered life. That unfiltered life part just really struck me. So I ask myself that question, am I really living that way? Am I really seeing life as it is instead of overlaying my, my thoughts, my opinions, my judgments, my anger on the world? And so... This process, this training of metta that we're going through is one of the ways that we are discovering because as we train in our metta practice, it's also a purification practice 
I think as Larry mentioned last night, because we get to see all those habitual forces that begin to unlayer themselves in our hearts. So it's hard, but we get the advantage, if you can see it that way, of um, getting those places exposed so we are able to live this unfiltered life, so we're able to live our lives with more honesty. So we get to see what are the habitual forces of the mind and heart that create this inner terrain, which therefore creates this outer terrain. Because what's happening out here is nothing less or more than what we are all experiencing in here. We also get to see what habitual forces serve peace, serve happiness, serve harmony. And luckily for us, lucky for us that we're able to do this practice healthy enough, fortunate enough to be able to come here to do this practice, to be able to see that times in times when we're experiencing moments of unconditional love, how harmonizing that is. We feel a deep connection with each other, with the world. So can we recognize that? Both of those, can we incline towards that? And metta is nothing more than the inclination of the heart over and over again. We may have recognized for ourselves already that these habit patterns, these forces that we've developed over the years through not seeing clearly or through ignorance have developed deep grooves in the mind-heart. So that begins to be our default setting. So whenever something happens, we just by default fall into that groove, fall into that habit pattern. And with the development of this particular practice of metta, we consciously and intentionally see that that's happening And then we consciously and intentionally see that this is where I turn, incline my heart and mind to the development of metta. No matter how boring it is, no matter how repetitious it is, no matter how challenging it is. Today I was speaking with a yogi and she pointed out to me when I I said that to her, she said, you know, it's really boring to go over and over again the same old thought pattern. So, you know, what's the big deal? We might as well turn the mind towards metta or turn the mind towards what is really uh, harmonizing, what is really onward leading in terms of liberation and peace. And that's so true. So there are these inner habitual forces that create an ecology. An ecology means that interrelationship between us as organisms and the outer world that create an ecology of disharmony, fear, mistrust, hatred, unhealthy attachment. And so all of us are here because we deeply know that and we deeply want to transform that. That's what we all have 
so much in common together. So can we be, be so clear about this that we really are able to take our energy moment to moment, over and over again, to that place where we can turn the mind, incline the mind to what's healthy, to what's peaceful, so that we'll be able to recognize more swiftly the places that bring us to disharmony, disharmony, and therefore bring the world to disharmony. Can we relinquish, relinquish those experiences with mindfulness, with compassion, and not nourish them? To, as the Dalai Lama says, to disarm what is harmful. So His Holiness the Dalai Lama called compassion this inner disarmament. It's not really trying to disarm, you know, all the atomic bombs that so many exist that could blow up this earth many, many, many times over. We don't have to go there. We can go to that very place in our own hearts where the disarming of greed, hatred, and delusion can take place through Uh, a strong antidote, the strong antidote of compassion. As His Holiness says, compassion doesn't make the atrocities of the world totally disappear, nor see them as right. It just stops those atrocities from continuing in our own hearts. This whole disarming process that we're going through. So we may not radically change the world, We can change some things, of course. There is that hope. All of us see it, hopefully. I do, in my own family, in my own community. It's not this radical change that we get so, we might get so um, unrealistically passionate about. But it is this radical change in our own hearts that can be a reality for all of us. So how can we have um, an inner landscape that truly touches the world with kindness? Usually, compassion is thought of in terms of helping or saving others. It's thought of in terms of facing the suffering out there and, of course, doing something about it when we can. And we altogether miss a very important first step, and that's why I want to to talk about the inner landscape of compassion tonight. And that first step is the tender-hearted care and willingness to face what is happening in here, first of all, first and foremost, maybe, to develop the courage to open to the truth of suffering in our own hearts, I believe truly that the reason why we're not as effective out there is because we haven't taken this first step to face it in here. And when we're able to face it in here, we will be much more effective out there as an individual, as a community that struggles, as families within that community. So it's so, so important to... um, bring this to our attention. And this is what we're doing here in our practice. Most of us say 
that we've got it down. We know what suffering is, and that's true. But do we know how to open to suffering with balance? Is that true? Do we know how to face suffering with compassion instead of with more anger? Is that true? So where do we stand? Only you know. Only I know for myself. And that's why we do this practice. And we're here together, but we give each other the space to know for ourselves what's going on without interference from someone else. I appreciate all of my teachers and my children, my family, my colleagues are also my teachers. But usually when you're in the Dharma, nobody lets you get away with being dishonest about your suffering and about facing it for yourself. So I'm just remembering this story. I think I'm going to put it here instead of later. I went to visit my teacher, Sayadaw Upandita, one time. And he, um, I was very happy to see him. I hadn't been able to see him for a few years. And so I said to him in English, and I said through his translator when um, he came through um, the door, I'm very happy to see you, Sayadawji, which means uh, beloved teacher. I'm very happy to see you. And he said something to me in Burmese and maybe partly Pali, which is that ancient language. And I didn't know exactly what it was, but we had our exchange, our conversation. And then later on, the translator, uh, when I was just alone with the translator, he said, do you want to know what Sayadawji said? And I, I really wasn't sure whether to answer yes, because he's quite a fierce as we all know, who practice with him. He can be quite fierce, but also quite a teddy bear, too. I don't think he'd like me saying that, but, um, but he is. Um, so the translator said, Seedal said to you, um, when I said, I'm very happy to see you, he said to you, I'm not here to make you happy. <laughs> he said, I'm here to make you mindful. And that's what's, he didn't say the rest of this, but that's what's going to make me happy. Not looking for my happiness out there, but really finding that happiness by knowing when to relinquish what is unwholesome and knowing what to develop as wholesome so that that becomes the basis for true wisdom to arise. And so there's this beautiful story that I love because many of you know that I have uh, four grown children and, and five grandchildren already. And it's, it's really hard to see when they suffer. And I've practiced so much to give them space to go through their suffering, to realize for themselves. So this has been so helpful for me, and I just offer it because I know each of us has Uh, people in our lives that are going through difficulties and we do what we can but we have to allow a good measure of their own suffering so that they can develop that wisdom they can develop that strength so this is a story by Ruth Sanford and it's called The Butterfly 
a compassionate person, seeing a butterfly struggling to free itself from its cocoon and wanting to help, very gently loosened the filaments to form an opening. The butterfly was freed, emerged from the cocoon, and fluttered about but could not fly. What the compassionate person did not know was that only through the birth struggle can the wings grow strong enough for flight. Its shortened life was spent on the ground. It never knew freedom. It never really lived. So I say this for all of us. I know that um, we haven't talked about it directly, but we've been practicing it all of us teachers, that it is really hard for us to see the suffering that you go through. But because we've gone through it in our various and unique ways, we know it's good. We know that you're getting strong. We know that you're developing the way for yourselves. And we we can only show the path. You have to walk it. That's your job. That's been our job as as. as meditators ourselves. So you all know in your own ways what compassion is. But just a few more words about it that maybe strike something in your own heart. The words are only words. What's real important is what comes out of your heart because the words make a connection somehow. Compassion results from cultivating this unconditional care of loving-kindness and turning that specifically towards suffering. So when loving-kindness is established and turns towards suffering specifically, the face of that loving-kindness transforms into compassion. So you might say that there's, there's not very much difference between loving-kindness and compassion, and that's true. That teacher, Sayada Upandita, I, I rarely have heard, or maybe, maybe I haven't even heard him, use the word loving-kindness, which is metta, of course, separate from the Pali word of compassion, which is karuna. I have always mostly heard him say metta-karuna, always together. Not a difference, because even here, even we've heard from you, there are times when in practicing loving-kindness, it just naturally or spontaneously turned towards some suffering in yourself or in, in those around us or about something in our family. And so naturally, compassion arose. Some of you came up with the, the true compassionate phrase, may I or you be free from pain and suffering. Somebody said, you know what works for me? Those uh, phrases don't work for me. Those um, uh, meta phrases don't work so much for me. But what works for me is this phrase, I care, which is a compassion phrase. I care about this suffering. So it comes up quite naturally, even as we're doing loving-kindness practice. And I wanted to point that out, that here, even though we've been giving the instructions for metta or loving-kindness, just very spontaneously, 
you have been doing that compassion practice here already. So in the ancient texts, compassion is described as the quivering of the heart in relationship to the pain of our lives, in relationship to dukkha. Maybe that word is new for you, but it means suffering. But it's so much more profound and deep, has so much more um, understanding in it than we can imagine just in the word suffering. So I like to use the word dukkha. I looked up one time in the Pali Dictionary that word, D-U-K-K-H-A, dukkha, and there, it was several, the description was several pages long, you know, very tiny print, many pages long, in fact, dukkha. So it's described as this quivering of the heart. So I, when I first heard that, it, it was like, well, what does that mean? That, that didn't mean too much to me, just that word, until I felt it, until I felt that aliveness or what that vividness, as Agnes Au talked about, that vividness of facing reality with that total nakedness and that aliveness of the heart, experiencing, as she says, experiencing the vividness of an unfiltered life. Most of us, when we come to practice, we come with the, um, with the aim of opening to all of life. But kind of um, a little bit unconsciously, we don't realize that when we come to spiritual practice, We just want to open to what's pleasant, (laughs) to what's beautiful, to the bliss that we can experience through our practices. What we don't realize until we get here and until we're, you know, we're supported through it is that if we have that aim, we have, uh, we don't have any other alternative. We must face the pain of life too. We must face that in order to open fully. So compassion doesn't layer a veneer of denial or anger or righteous indignation or idealism on top of reality. This idealism, which we all have in one way or another, is our shoulds. It should be this way in our community, in our society, and the global level. It should be that way. That should is delusion and attachment together. And we, when we layer that veneer of uh, attachment and delusion, delusion because we can't face how it is usually in the beginning, then we're not living that life with that kind of vividness, that kind of honesty. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have ideals but this idealism is a, is a kind of unrealistic idealism sometimes. So it's for all of us to explore. Can we have our aims? Can we have our, um, our visions and, and head towards them, try to actualize them? As Larry was speaking about last night and this morning, can we try to actualize them with compassion all along the way to see that we really want to help the world in turning 
its face in this way. But we must have compassion all along the way to the places where it isn't that way. Can we do this without attachment to result? As Larry mentioned this morning, we have to keep shifting and changing because everything is changing and shifting. And so we may change. We have to be willing to turn on a dime and and even change our vision. Compassion doesn't layer that veneer, any veneer, but faces the rawness of life by first facing the rawness of our inner world with nobility, with courage. The inequity and chaos in this world can and does overwhelm us. It's true. It's, it's totally overwhelming for me in this electronic age, too. There's so much avail- information available to us. Unless we develop a skill set that is able to remain open to what's going on, remain clear, remain caring, without closing down, without running away, without judging, without criticizing, those, play, those ways that we overlay something onto reality and don't give a chance for compassion to arise. Unless we develop that skill set, which we are here and we all do in our various forms of meditation, we aren't able to face that chaos, that inequity in the world, in a way that we can be clear about it and then take action that's really effective in the world, because that action is based on clarity. His Holiness again says, I, I quote him a lot because he's our, he's our compassion guy in the world, you know. <laughs> compassion, he says, is a feeling of closeness with a sense of responsibility. So he doesn't leave that responsibility out. It's not just feeling close, but it's feeling, having this ability to respond. So what composes that ability to respond? Is it anger? Is it criticism? Is it judgment? Is it caring? Is it clarity? Is it an inner space to see the difference? What is it? Only you can answer that question. So we're, we're developing a skill here that's immeasurably helpful. Most of us who have been in the practice for a while know that it's hard to do any practice. And metta and this kind of concentration practice is very challenging. Many of you have done the um, mindfulness vipassana practice of taking an object or um, recognizing an object that has already arisen and seeing it pass away and just developing the skill moment to moment to see it arise, change, and pass away. And that takes a particular swiftness and clarity of mind and a kind of bare attention. Metta is a skill where we take the object of metta, whatever it is, it's various things all relating to metta, 
various methods we use, phrases, feelings, etc. And we have to actually hold it there for a while. And again and again and again, over and over. So it takes a very different kind of energy to go through, to do this, to develop this metta practice. And that's why it's so trying sometimes. And so it's, in a way, I felt that it's a more difficult practice to teach because of just holding that energy that everybody has to hold that energy. And so that skill that people find hard to develop in the beginning that they find the, the very most difficult. And, you know, we hear this a lot. I hate metta practice, you know. <laughs> um, it's the very people who hate metta practice usually know that it's the very practice they need to develop. <laughs> of course. So when they go home and they do it, and sometimes they ask me, what can I do? Or they ask us, what can I do? And we say, you know, take metta home and do it for a whole year. Do it for yourself only, or your benefactor. Only that for a whole year. And when they come back to the next time of practice, it's transformative. They have transformed. And I'm not exaggerating. It's really true. So you're, you're on to something. You know, but it, it really it really takes your commitment and your moment to moment commitment. Most people say something like, So far it has turned out to be the most important skill of my life. Because after all, in our relationships with each other, in our relationships to ourselves the one most important factor is love. When I reflect on compassion for me, what arises is um, that feeling of aliveness and of awakeness that I can have and that there have been moments and increasing moments in my life as I continue to practice that awakeness to how things are instead of fighting how things are. It's the awakeness to how things are in the moment. And that's a very different relationship with life. So compassion, you might say, transforms our relationship to life so that instead of having a relationship of closing down, fear, turning away, striking out at, being lost in suffering which I'll speak all about all of those more, we have a relationship of openness, of caring, of this courageous leading into the heart with life. So that's how it's so transformative. We're alive, we're truly human, we're awake. As Gina said uh, just recently, when the Buddha was asked, are you a celestial being? Are you a god? Are you, what are you? And the Buddha answered, I am awake. And so this is what our practice is leading us to. This quivering of the heart, which says to us, my heart is not imprisoned in fear. My heart is not imprisoned in ignorance or in anger. And as um, 
George says, I'm not giving it free rent in my mind. You know, I love that. So maybe sometimes that's truthful, that's truthful that we are doing that or we're imprisoned and we, we have to know that moment with compassion also, but then that releases us from the prison. When we're not paralyzed because of all the inequities of life, I try to reflect back recently when I first felt, felt consciously alive, felt consciously awake to that. And so I know stories always tell, um, give a lot more uh, teaching than anything else. So here's a, a little story. But I want to point out that my story, that it's mine, is not important. I tell this story because it's everybody's story. Because in some ways you all have some parallel to this. So by the age of 21, I had two children. And I was born in the Philippines. I came to America with my mother. We immigrated here when I was two years old. I um, had a baby here got married, had a baby, and went back to live in the Philippines because I married someone from there. And as most of us, I came from a very poor family. And um, I'm sort of weirdly proud to say (laughs) that I grew up in the projects near the Cow Palace. Um, I don't know if it's still around. That's where I grew up, and then I moved to East Palo Alto. So I, I've really had a rich life that I am so grateful for. And uh, I learned through all of that. So because I came from that kind of um, poverty, but richness of life in a way, and then I married into a very wealthy family with a lot of political power in the Philippines, um, I saw the poverty around me so clearly. I would ride in a car to um, my job, which was, um, I had to ask for a job because I was just very spoiled when I went there. And um, so I asked to have a job. And I was given a job because of the power that my married family I was married into had of... um, working in the Central Bank of the Philippines, but I only had to go on payday to collect my paycheck. (laughs) It was really weird. So, (laughs) it's true. I went there in a Mercedes Benz um, with a driver, and I I walked in the back seat of the car. I always tried to sit in the front, but I was not allowed to sit in the front. I had to sit in the back. I always felt more aligned, you know, with the driver. And so, um, and then I was handed my tea and something to have on a platter on the way. And as I went, I'm just giving you a picture. As I went, um, I was, our car was marked because we was, we, family was in political power with a license plate that, where the policeman would see it, would stop all the cars and just let me go through. And so we had a few cars that way um, in the family. And so 
then I got to the central bank and, you know, then the guard or somebody would see me and bring this umbrella over and then, you know, walk up to the office and then I'd wait for the, for the paymaster to come. Okay, well, on my way there, you know, I just, I felt awful, of course, because this immense poverty was all around me. And children would come to the car. You know, the beggars would actually borrow newborn children and they'd come to the car and beg and all of that, that many of us know what's happening in these third world countries, which is my mother country. And so there was an avalanche of suffering in my heart, seeing all this. And I know that this was a blessing in my life to go through this at such a young age because it's what made me open to the Dharma. I I really was looking for a way to the end of suffering. So there was this avalanche of suffering and that suffering included a lot of numbness. I just felt closed down. I couldn't take it. I didn't feel alive. But I started to wake up to how there was this numbness. There was this striking out in my own thoughts about the political situation in in the Philippines at that time. The family I was married into was the family that was in the political party opposite of Marcos. And so we, I was in a good family, you know, really trying to um, see what good could be done in, in uh, the political situation. I was drowning in my sorrow a lot of the times. I, I had personal marital problems also, and there were problems, of course, you know, in the whole bigger situation So I felt paralyzed, I felt closed down, and very, very angry at times. But the anger was, you know, so inward, it was a lot of depression for me. So at times there was this hardness, and I wanted to do something. So I had, among the people who helped me, I had a nurse for the children. And um, that nurse had six, six children of her own in an orphanage because um, she, was, she was a nurse, which was a good profession in the Philippines, paid, paid well for that profession, and, but not enough still to support her children. So what she did was she had her children in this particular orphanage. It was called the Santuario de San Jose. And she... Um, worked there in the orphanage on her days off with us in order to have her children be taken care of. So I asked her if I could go with her because I wanted to help. It was just a small thing, you know, but maybe I could bring rice, uh, bags of rice every time I went to feed everybody, and I could carry the children and be with them and give them some little, you know, soothing touch that children don't get in orphanages. And so out of interest, I, I had to get closer to it, you know, out of just wanting to help. But I had to open to that suffering that was in my heart um, as well as the suffering that was out there because I knew I couldn't make it otherwise. Mm-hmm. I just felt like, you know, I'd go there and I'd just feel hardened sometimes or not know what to do. I was very young and 
um, you know, pretty innocent even when I got married. And so the nuns were loving, their compassion was catchy, and I learned, I saw just from being with the, those Catholic nuns how um, they could face it. And so I learned by just watching them. So I had to face that inner, those inner appearances of suffering, those inner difficulties, um, so that I could really be of help to those people that I was with. It wasn't about saving anyone. Um, You know, I knew it was just a little thing. I just helping this little child feel accepted for a few moments, and then that little child, and then feeding them so they had something to eat. It was fulfilling. But it was fulfilling because at the same time, even though I hadn't come to the Dharma yet, I knew I had to face what was going on inwardly. So I began to be more conscious, and I began to feel more alive, and I began to feel just more effective in in little ways. It's what the time that began my that spiritual urgency. There's a special word for spiritual urgency in the Buddhist teachings, and that is samvega. And that's what we all have, because you're here, you have spiritual urgency. We all have it. We want to understand the way to the end of suffering. So I came to be aware of this urgency more and more, and it's when I came to really look for what is the path to the end of suffering? Not just saving the world out there, but saving myself first. There's this beautiful grouping of words by the poet William Wordsworth who says, A deep distress hath humanized my soul. So what was yours? You know what it is. You're here. That's why you're here. So part of that inner terrain that concerns compassion is the direct opposite of compassion, or the far enemy. We call the far enemy, which is cruelty. This is what we feel sometimes when we open to suffering, so it's part of the terrain that we must be able to open to and bring compassion to right there. This cruelty strikes out at what bothers us. It may strike out silently with our words or with our inner emotions, but it's still striking out. It can turn into aggressive speech, harmful speech, speech that divides people. It can turn into bodily aggression. We can, even with our emotions, even when it isn't bodily or even when it isn't by words, even with our emotions, when people see them, you know, the anger, it's hurtful. All of us have been hurt when somebody hasn't said something, but we see the, the anger come across their face and see it in their bodily uh, expression. There's also this subtle turning our back on the suffering of the world, suffering in ourselves, that denial, 
mostly about what's happening in ourselves. We're, we're all pretty much awake to the suffering in the world. That um, ignoring, that ignorance of suffering in ourselves where we abandon ourselves. You know, we, for a long time I, I talked about how my father abandoned me. And, you know, it was always out there, that blame, that blame, that blame out there. And then I finally said, how am I abandoning myself? How am I not paying attention to my own pain regarding that? He's dead and gone, and I have a lot of love for him, appreciation for him, and a feeling, you know, of abandonment too, which is more porous now. But when I came to feeling that hurt in myself, that's when I was able to make peace with it. Not by that turning towards that abandonment, that blame towards him. When we're clear about this, when we can bring attention, compassionate attention to that place within us, to those places of cruelty within us, that compassion is so utterly important because that's where we are learning to bring compassion to the world, to the outer world. Because it gives us a space to make a choice of how we respond to the world, how we can bring action into the world. Again, this is from... His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, his remarks about some events in his country where there's a lot of turmoil. The Tibetans reacted by attacking police, security forces, and innocent civilians. This made me very sad. It would have been much more constructive if people tried to understand their supposed enemy, learning to be compassionate, learning to forgive, is much more useful than merely picking up a stone and throwing it at the object of one's anger, the more so when the provocation is extreme. For it is under the greatest adversity that there exists the greatest potential for cultivating good, both for oneself and others. So what this person has taught me just by his open heart just by his compassion is to be able to more and more but still it's hard to have compassion for the perpetrators of suffering as well as for the victims so compassion asks us can we do that and George talked the other night about equanimity about balance and it's said that and it's true that and we we can see in our own experience that it takes that balance to be able to open our hearts to both the perpetrators of suffering and the victims of suffering. Because that equanimity is that still, spacious balance where the heart is so big that it's able to see the suffering in the perpetrator as well as the suffering in the victim. And we often forget that that's, that's part of our practice, is to open to the suffering of the ones who are causing pain. It's not easy to do, and 
of course, I'm still working on it in a very intense way. Our enemies are our greatest treasures. They give us a chance to transform. So can we be compassionate with ourselves? I asked Manindra one time, one of our teachers, um, because I found in my journal this question, why does it hurt so much sometimes? And this was a journal that I wrote shortly after I came to the United States back from the Philippines. And um, I was a single parent of three small children. It was really, really hard. And um, I found the Dharma, luckily, and Manindra as a teacher. So I asked Manindra, why does it hurt so much? And he said, because your heart is disentangling. Because the tangle is disentangling. Because when we do this practice, or any practice that's worth its salt, it exposes the hard bits of our hearts. It exposes those places so that we can bring, as Larry was talking about, a a mindful meta-attention to it, which is compassion where we can bring a softness, a gentleness to it instead of the harshness of cruelty, of more cruelty towards that. This is from the Samyutta Nikaya, one of the ancient um, texts of preserving the teachings of the Buddha about a tangle. A tangle inside, a tangle outside. This generation is entangled in a tangle. I ask you this, O Gautama, somebody was asking the Buddha, who can disentangle this tangle? And the Buddha responded, one established in virtue, wise, developing the mind and heart with wisdom, one who is ardent and discreet, this person can disentangle the tangle. So all of our practice is bringing us there. The near enemy. I talked about the far enemy of cruelty. The near enemy, part of the landscape of compassion, because we go there when we face suffering. We don't just, we're not just able to be in compassion. We go to the places of cruelty, of striking out, of turning away from. And we also, the mind and heart out of habit goes to the near enemy, which is this kind of overwhelming, unwholesome grief unhealthy grief, not the healthy kind of grief that lets things let, lets us let go of things, but an unwholesome kind of grief where we, get, we can sort of get identified. We get identified with the suffering. So in this near enemy of unhealthy grief or pity, we're drowning in the suffering. Our minds and hearts aren't uh, really steeped, aren't really balanced within the uh, care for the suffering. There's a phrase that we use specifically for the compassion practice, I care about this pain. I care about this pain. 
So there is the compassion and there is the pain. And sometimes what happens is that our energy gets lost in the suffering. And we don't know how to shift our energy to the feeling care, to the care part of it. And compassion helps us to do that. We learn that we can center our energy more in the care than in the pain. It's here in this area of this indirect opposite of the near enemy that we get so bogged down in the suffering that our identity gets based around it. We get an identity gets solidified around it. Like all of you, I've had a lot of suffering in my life, and it's made me stronger, and I've learned to how to handle it better. But there was a time when I didn't, of course, and when I first met up with Manindra, I was home from the Philippines. I came back from the Philippines and was... Uh, living actually back in California for a couple of years before I moved to Hawaii. And um, he came to visit and was giving daily teachings because he lived in our house. And one time I was taking him somewhere, and for probably the hundredth time I was telling him about my suffering and about, oh, poor me. And I, you know, I, poor me, I've got these three children, I'm struggling so hard, and this is what happened to me in the Philippines. And he did me a great service. He scolded me. And right on the spot, he said, stop it. I, I remember driving somewhere in my little Volkswagen. And he said, stop. He said, if you continue this way, you'll just get so bogged down. You'll get so lost in your suffering that you won't see a way out basically, is what he said. The past is dead and gone. I still kind of remember his words. The past is dead and gone. The future is not yet born. You have a chance to recreate your future. Now is that chance. You are not taking that chance to recreate your future. You are lost in your past. Wow. That woke me up. Out of respect for him, of course, I didn't talk back or anything as I might have to my mother, but, <laughs> but I, I was pretty good, and I really took it in, and that really helped me. The past is dead and gone. The future is not yet born. In this moment, you have a chance to create your future. Are you taking that chance? Are you giving yourself that opportunity? So we can get lost in that suffering and create, really, an identity around that. We don't want to do that. We can make our identity around suffering, no matter what it is, whether it's, you know, being a single parent, being, um, you know, not in, a, in, in relationship to others, not in a very good financial situation, uh, being feeling uh, discriminated against the whole racism um, challenge that we have in our world. We want to know that it's happening. We want to be clear about how we feel about it. 
We want to care about it in ourselves and in the world so that we can act on it with the same care and clarity. But we don't want to be identified with it in a way that brings us down, in a way that gets us lost, in a way that we solidify our sense of self around that identity. We're much more than that. Yes, we are that. We can never forget that. Being from the culture I am from, and as all of you, it's really important to honor our ancestors and honor our culture. And that's so important to me. But um, I'm much more than that. Are you much more than that? So that is the landscape. Those are the places that we'll feel as we develop compassion. We'll feel the places of cruelty. Can we bring compassion and aliveness there? We'll feel the places where we're bogged down in suffering. Can we feel an awakeness, a clarity, an aliveness, and even a caring there? Can we open to those places inside of us, those places that are the perpetrators of suffering. When we can open to that place inside of us, then we can open to those in the world that are like that. And we'll be strong and effective and we'll make a change in the world as much as we can without any attachment to how it's moving and shifting. So that's enough. That's a lot. I know I said a lot that um, could be hard to hear, but maybe not, because I like to look at each one of you as intelligent, strong, able to take things, not personally, to see how it affects your life. I really look to each one of you in your strength and not in your weaknesses. But I accept your weaknesses too as I accept mine. So I'd like to end with this um, by some unknown to me uh, poet, composer by the name of Sonia Johnson who said, um, We have the chance to dare to dream of a love that encompasses everything and possesses nothing. So let's sit for a moment and just let the words dissolve. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.